If you have a Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start here and then be looking at some selected passages throughout the scripture together this morning. If you notice, there's a different title uh, for our sermon in, in a sense that we're in a different book. We've been going through the book of Acts verse by verse, but this morning we're going to do a standalone sermon, and I'm entitled it A Biblical Perspective of end-of-life issues, a biblical perspective on end-of-life issues. You ask, well, Adam, that's an interesting title. Uh, Some of you know I was invited to go speak at the ACBC National Conference in Memphis, Tennessee this week. It's quite an honor and a privilege to go and to to share there along with several several other uh, people. There's about 2,500 people at the conference and uh, they asked me to speak on this issue a little bit because of some of my medical background and just a little bit because they just said, hey, We feel like you do a great job. We want to invite you out. And so I've been working on this particular talk, this sermon, this lecture to give to the ACBC conference over the course of the summer and even this past week, making some edits. And so uh, you guys get the first exposure to it, all right? You get a little dry run here where I, I thought I would just share it with you. A lot of you who knew that I was going out there were asking, hey, what are you speaking on? Uh, you know, we want to hear what you're going to have to say. And so this may seem, again, just a little bit out of sorts, but this is just what the Lord's laid on my heart, and I thought it would be a blessing and encouragement to you, and so hopefully you're blessed by it. So we'll start in Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. I'll read the passage. We'll pray and jump into this issue here together this morning. Here's what we read in Romans 5. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to say thank you in this last song that we just sang for your blood that was poured out, your life that was given. Thank you for the resurrecting power that we see so that we know that death has been defeated. And I pray, God, as we look into this time, as we examine various passages of Scripture and biblical arguments for what to think about, the end-of-life issues, some of the present debates of our age, that you would help inform us and that you would help give us greater conviction and patience and grace with various people who are either going through a struggle like this or have a family member or a friend who has gone through a trial like this. So give us wisdom this morning. I pray that you would be glorified in our time together, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in 1990, Dr. Jack Kevorkian helped Oregon school teacher Janet Atkins to take her life. Kevorkian continued to use his medical expertise to assist the suicides of more than 100 others. Eventually, he was convicted of second-degree murder. Of course, this does not go well with him professionally. His medical license was revoked, and his Fantron death machine was sold, and the American Medical Association called him, at the time, a great threat to the public. Nevertheless, 32 years later, his legacy still propels physician-assisted suicide into the public square. In 1997, Oregon passed the Death with Dignity Act, 
which at the end of 2021 has allowed 2,159 patients in one state alone to take their lives. The Oregon Death with Dignity Act's executive summary for 2021 states that it allows terminally ill Oregonians who meet specific qualifications to end their lives through voluntary self-administration of a lethal dose of medication prescribed by a physician for that purpose. The act requires that the Oregon Health Authority to collect information about patients and physicians who participate in the act and to publicly uh, publish an annual statistical report. And so the demographic characteristics of 2021 were similar to those of previous years. Most patients, the report says, were aged 65 years or older, 81% of them, in fact, uh, 95% of them were white. The most common diagnosis where someone chose to end their life was a diagnosis of cancer, 61%, followed by neurological disease, 15%, and heart disease, 12%. In 1973, abortion on demand was legalized through the Supreme Court ruling Roe versus Wade. Praise God for the new Supreme Court ruling that came out this year that overturned that with the Dobbs decision. But with the devaluation of life at its earliest stages, it was only a matter of time before life would also be devaluated at its later end stages. And by lifting protections for the unborn, the Supreme Court at the time retreated from a sacred view of life and recognize instead a woman's personal autonomy in the decision to abort her and to abort her child and this has been expressed popularly with the right to choose so not unexpectedly if that happened at the beginning of life what we see is the same thing happening at the end of life that decisions with with efforts to sanction euthanasia and physician assisted suicide under the principle of an individual's right to die so as of this year, there have been 10 states in the District of Columbia that have legalized physician-assisted suicide through legislation. Those states would be Hawaii, California, Oregon, Washington, Montana, Colorado, New Mexico, New Jersey, Vermont, and Maine. And laws vary by state, but most include at least one request to a licensed physician to obtain a prescription for these life-ending drugs. And some states require a terminally ill diagnosis and others multiple requests. The patient requesting the life-ending drugs takes the poison by mouth, which results in causing their death. And although the U.S. numbers compared to those in the rest of the world are somewhat low, physician-assisted suicide, they will eventually grow as more and more legalizing, uh, more and more laws are legalizing the practice that has been passed you only need to look at the countries of the Netherlands and Belgium to understand that the right to die movement has really grown over the last 20 or so years. In the Netherlands, it was the first country in the world to legalize euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, introducing that preliminary legislation in 1994, following with a fully-fledged law in 2002. The practice has been tolerated, however, for quite some time. And official data in that country shows that the numbers of euthanasia has grown significantly, reaching some 6,361 patients in the year of 2019. 
These cases make up just a small population of the, of the deaths, only about 2% back in 2002, but in 2019, it was up to over 4%. So that'd be one in 25 people in the country of the Netherlands chose to end their own life by, sui uh, by suicide, physician-assisted suicide. And so at this point, let, let me just clarify what it is that we're talking about. We're talking about human dignity and end-of-life issues. And as you well know, suicide is the act of deliberately or purposefully causing one's own death. So physician-assisted suicide occurs when a physician provides a medical means for death, usually the prescription of a lethal amount of medication, and that patient takes it on their own. Euthanasia, on the other hand, is when the physician directly and intentionally administers a substance to cause the death. And both of these acts are killing. They're just differentiated by the person who's doing the killing, either yourself or another person. In this case, the physician who's assisting you in that act. In euphemistic expressions of physician-assisted suicide, such as assistance in dying, are specifically used to mask the true content of these actions and they should be rejected. In other words, they try to make it sound nice. They try to make it sound better. If we call it something that's really assisting someone, then maybe it'll be accepted by the public. And in addition to this, physician-assisted suicide should be distinguished from informed decisions by patients who refuse life-sustaining treatment in ways that compassionately respect their individual choice. The Greek word for euthanasia means good death. That's what the word means, good death. And for some, this makes the terms euthanasia and mercy killing terms that can be comforting in the face of difficult medical situations. And when any person, especially a family member or a close friend, is experiencing pain or mental degeneration, or other adverse conditions, our instinct is to relieve that person of their trial in any way possible. And sometimes this desire to alleviate pain can become so strong for the caregiver or the patient that it overrides our deeper impulse to preserve life and to survive. And so here in our message today to you, this sermon, I want to just give you three headings to help you better understand end-of-life issues and then three biblical principles to help you address in your own thinking and in conversations you may have this important topic. So here's the three arguments for, and then we'll give three biblical responses to. The first argument for would be arguments for euthanasia and physician-assistant suicide. In, in the reading and the research I've done to prepare this, I've found basically three main arguments. A, your first blank, if you are taking notes, just simply says a desire for autonomy and an individual's right to die. So this would be the first argument. People want to be able to be in control of their own destiny. They want to be able to determine when they die. They, they believe that they are in total control of their own lives and their own deaths. They, they believe that they can do what they want, when they want, and no one else has the right to tell them otherwise. But as for Christians... We must realize that our lives belong to God and we have been purchased by Christ's sacrifice and we are no longer our own. We, we belong to him. And so our desire must be to walk in obedience to God's word. And simply put, Jesus is our master and we are his servants. We are, we, we are bound to him 
to, to love him and to obey him and to walk with him. And the contrary, the general public or unbelievers obviously don't want to be accountable to anybody and they want to have the right to do whatever they want. In fact, consider this story concerning two different women. In 2014, two women were diagnosed with a terminal stage four glioblastoma multiform brain tumor. It was a terminal diagnosis. One was named Brittany Maynard, and she was a young woman who decided to move from California to Oregon at the time so she could obtain these drugs to end her life. And her, re- her view reflected the culture's view that death is a friend. And she welcomed this friend of death, and she wanted to maintain control of her own life and eliminate any future suffering. And so Brittany died by her own hand a few months later. Now, in the same year, another woman diagnosed with the exact same diagnosis, her name was Maggie Carner, and she viewed death as an enemy that had been defeated through the death and resurrection of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God had given her life and purpose, and she was determined to serve the Lord throughout her remaining days on this earth. And so Maggie died naturally a year later in 2015. And during that year, she wrote many different articles expressing her views on this subject. And in one of those articles, prior to her death, Maggie wrote, quote, death sucks. And while this leads many to attempt to calm their fears by grasping for personal control over the situation as a Christian with a Savior who loves me dearly and who has redeemed me from a dying world, I have a higher calling. God wants me to be comfortable in my dependence on him and others to live with him in peace and comfort no matter what comes my way. And then she writes this, as for my cancer journey, circumstances out of my control are not the worst thing that could happen to me. The worst thing would be losing my faith, refusing to trust in God's purpose in my life and trying to grab control for myself. Well, this woman certainly has a pretty clear focus on how to honor Jesus while giving us a clear example of Christian living in the face of death. And so the first argument for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide is autonomy or wanting to be in control of one's own death. You know, just casually put, I think I want to go this way, or I want to go that way. I certainly don't want the disease to kill me. And if I just take a few pills, I can just fall asleep, and that would be a nice way to go. A second argument given for this position would be an, an effort to minimize pain and suffering. An effort to minimize pain and suffering. Most people in the world believe that pain and suffering should be eliminated under all circumstances, There was a Time Magazine article from 2016 entitled, I'm a Christian with stage four cancer. I want to die with dignity. Now, this lady takes a little different approach from the exemplary example just given, but this article is written by a lady by the name of Corin Johnson Treat, who was living in San Jose, California, and she starts off her article like this. I've had cancer for four years. I was diagnosed with stage three lung cancer in 2012. It was a surprise to my family and myself. I don't smoke, I exercise regularly, I was 58. I didn't expect to still be here, but my mantra is no, con- uh, no coincidences. God has a plan for what I do and where I should be. 
So, so far, so good, right? She goes on to say, now keep in mind, this article was written in 2016. She says, I watched the hearings about the California's End of Life Option Act, knowing that it could affect me personally. The act, which as of June the 9th, 2016, now became law in California, allows citizens with six months or fewer to live to legally seek from their doctors the lethal dose of medicine, most of the time a fast-acting barbiturate like seconal. After an approval process involving, among other checks, two verbal requests and a written affirmation signed, dated, and witnessed two days beforehand, they can take the drug to end their lives. Their death certificates will not name the cause of death as suicide. Corin says, after the removal of my right upper lobe in my lung in 2012, I had several rounds of chemotherapy. At that time, the doctor said the cancer was incurable. In March of 2015, we discovered that the lung cancer had metastasized to my brain, neck, and chest. I had gamma knife radio surgery for the tumors in my brain, then chemo and six weeks of general radiation. In January of 2016, the cancer recurred in my brain. I had a second gamma knife surgery, but the cancer has not halted. She continued, the chemotherapy almost killed me. It was an awful thing to lie in bed. There was a point where I hardly had a heartbeat. And when you are in that much pain, and, you're just, and you've just had lung surgery, the chemo won't let the surgery heal. You feel like you want to die. Now, my sympathy certainly goes out to this lady. In fact, she's playing to our sympathy in the argument she's about to make. I mean, we should all feel very sorry for anyone in this very difficult situation. And as we will see, she's saying that when things get really bad, when you've lost all hope, and when you're lying there and you just want to die, then maybe you should. And according to Corinne's statement, her argument, she then says this, if God grants us the intelligence to enable doctors to offer treatments that prolong life, that have prolonged my life, wouldn't that same logic apply to those of us nearing the end of life? When science can't offer life-sustaining treatments anymore, then the role of medicine should be to relieve suffering. And she's hinting at here at the thought that maybe God gave doctors wisdom to create a treatment that can kill you peaceably. And I think our hearts go out just a little bit, right? There's just something about that. You're like, well, maybe, yeah, maybe that is okay. And then Corin shows her flawed theology. She writes... I think when you look at personal experience, governing doctrines from a church don't seem to matter nearly as much. Well, now she's said it. She's saying that personal experience trumps the doctrine of the church. She is, in effect, saying that personal experience trumps the doctrine of the Bible. She is saying, in a sense, that personal experience trumps the doctrine of the Christian faith. And Corin ends her article by saying, and it feels a little weird to say, but I've been touched by God. I have, she writes. I've prayed about this, and I have felt his presence. I think that God is showing me this is the alternative. 
This is the peaceful way that I'm granting you to go. I've seen myself taking the drug. I'm in my room, lying comfortably in my bed, surrounded by my family, feeling peace and tranquility, embraced by God and those I love. Now, this is getting to be very mystical, where she's basically saying that not only has God given her permission to take her own life, but that he is encouraging her to do so. And the way that she knows that is because she's felt it in prayer. And she knows it's the right thing to do, and so that's what she did. This was the peaceful way that God had granted her to go. Now, again, this argument would be to say that modern medicine exists to minimize and even do away with all pain and suffering, whatever the cost, whatever it takes, just remove my physical trial and everyone should be able to see that this is for the greater good. Therefore, God gave doctors the wisdom and ability to kill you or to help you kill yourself peaceably. So we have the argument of autonomy the argument of minimizing all pain and suffering. And now let me give you a third argument that's offered by those in favor of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. And we'll call this one, C, a moral indifference between causing death or allowing the dying process to occur. Remember, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide means intervening in some way to aid your death. The act itself can be performed by a physician, that's euthanasia, or the physician can simply prescribe a lethal amount of medication necessary for you to take your own life, that's called physician-assisted suicide. And those who are morally confused about this decision see no difference between your life being ended on purpose or being allowed to die of natural causes. Well, I need to make sure you understand there's a big difference between these two. One is aiding in your death, therefore causing death, and one is simply allowing you to die when death comes. One is saying that I want to do something to make myself die, while the other is saying I am willing to die of natural causes. I'm okay with that. Lots of patients in the hospital have DNRs on their chart stands for do not resuscitate. It's an order that ideally they have already on their chart. So in the case of an emergency, particularly while they're there in the hospital for a lengthy stay, that if they were to have a cardiac arrest or to die, that they would prefer to say, hey, just let me go. So it's asking for people not to intervene with CPR, but it's not asking for a pill to kill yourself or for a doctor to push a drug to kill you while you're lying there in the bed. This is simply not resuscitating a life if someone does die. This order is determined by the patient who's saying, if I'm dying again, let me die. And that's completely different, I'm saying to you, than asking the doctor to kill you or to allow you to kill yourself. Basically, what is happening in this debate is that the proponents of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide don't recognize the moral difference between actively pursuing death and the patient's desire to be allowed to die for natural causes. If someone wants to die peaceably, there is palliative care and hospice care, which can appropriately be provided. Palliative care is specialized medical care for people living with serious illness, such as cancer or heart failure. 
Patients in palliative care may receive medical care for their symptoms along with treatment intended to cure their serious illness. Palliative care is meant to enhance a person's current care by focusing on the quality of life for them and for their family. Increasingly, people are choosing hospice care as well at the end of life. Hospice care focuses on the care, the comfort, and the quality of the life of a person with a serious illness who is approaching the end of life. At some point, it may not be possible to cure a serious illness or a patient may choose not to undergo certain treatments. And so hospice care is designed for this situation where the patient is beginning hospice care. They're understanding that his or her own illness is not responding to medical treatment to cure it or to slow the disease's process, progress. So like palliative care, hospice provides comprehensive comfort and care as well as support for the family, but in hospice, attempts to cure a person's illness are stopped. Hospice is provided for a person with a terminal illness whose doctor believes she has six months or less to live if the illness runs its natural course. So, so far, we've looked at three arguments for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Number one, a desire for autonomy, an individual's right to die. Number two, an effort to minimize pain and suffering. And number three, there's a moral indifference between causing one's own death or allowing, allowing one to die naturally. Well, can I just say, as Christians, that we have to stand up to the emotions and the subtle deception that somehow as humans, we think we have the right to die when we want and how we want. It is a complete deception to think that as humans, our ultimate goal is to minimize and remove all pain and suffering. And as Christians, we have to especially recognize the moral indifference between causing death or allowing death to occur naturally, which is that would be a, a disgrace not to be able to discern the difference between those two. And so I want to help you uh, think sharply about this. I want to I help you think biblically about it. They, are the arguments have kind of laid all out there. Now I'm going to help give you some stronger biblical responses to it. And I'm going to start off by helping you with a football story. All right, come on. It's football season. Football story uh, has to do with Reggie White, who played as a defensive end for the Philadelphia Eagles. And if you don't know this about him, outside of football, Reggie White was a committed minister to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of his friends in football put those two words together. And so they nicknamed him the minister of defense. He's a minister of the gospel. He's a great defender. So it's Reggie White, the minister of defense. And I, I heard a story about a game which, which he played, which he kept running over and through the offensive line of opposition. And there was a guy assigned to blocking him who kept getting run over by Reggie White. And so Reggie White, the minister of defense, kept flattening this guy play after play. And as Reggie White would come back through the O-line, the guy there was lying on the ground. And so after one play, Reggie gave him his hand and he pulled him up and he said to him, Jesus loves you and I love you, but you better learn how to block. <laughs> his heart went out to this guy. Right? It's a good story, but it's also the same for God's people. Let me explain. It's not enough to know 
how to grow in ministry. We also need to know how to protect what God has grown in our efforts. We had better learn how to block the ministry God has given us from those who seek to destroy it or to dilute it. We had better learn how to block against false teachers. And the Bible tells us that they want to disrupt the faith and to stop God's work. But Jesus taught his disciples to block, in a sense. In Matthew 7, 15 through 20, Jesus warned his disciples about false teachers who will be wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, for this issue on euthanasia and physician-assistant suicide, it starts with so-called believers who are in the church. I mean, if they're outside the church, we understand that our biggest goal is not to win this argument, but to win them to Christ. But if they're in the church and they're claiming to be Christians and they're trying to justify abortion on this end of life and physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia on this end of life, then we've now allowed false teaching to creep into the church. And Paul, the apostle, has a lot to say about false teachers. In fact, he warns the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, and he taught them how to block. He said, look, I want to I teach you to watch, and I want to teach you to pray, and I want to commend to you the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. But you need to be careful, because after my departure, ravenous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and they will seek to draw disciples out after themselves. Jesus taught his disciples how to block. Paul taught the Ephesian elders how to block. Peter in 2 Peter 2 taught the churches in Central Asia how to block. And blocking and tackling false teachers is the name of pastoral and the biblical counseling game. From the inception of the church and of a biblical counseling ministry, the greatest threat and greatest danger to the gospel and the teaching of the Bible usually comes from within the church, within the church of people who claim to be Christians, and yet they hold to false doctrine, such as, again, accepting homosexuality, accepting transgenderism, accepting abortion, and in this case, accepting physician-assisted suicide. I'm labeling it as a false teaching that's infiltrated the church, that plays on your emotion, that plays towards the fact that you want to help people who are in need, and you start to think, well, is giving them a pill to kill themselves really all that bad? Well, we got to examine that in the light of God's word. So let me address that. Our second heading was, uh, the first was all the arguments for their side. Now let me give you answers from the Bible on euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. The first argument would be, A, God determines your days. God determines your days. Let me give you a few truths under this subpoint. Number one, murder is a sin. Murder is a sin. Can I just say from the very beginning of the Christian tradition that based on the Bible, that murder has always been a sin and suicide has always been morally wrong and therefore a sin. And clearly, both the Old and New Testaments condemn murder. And since suicide is, by definition, killing yourself, it is classified as murder. And we understand the Bible has a ton to say about this. Exodus 20, verse 13, one of the Ten Commandments, number six, you shall not murder. Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 17, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17, you shall not murder. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. When the rich young man came to Jesus and asked him what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then in Matthew 19, 18, we read, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. And so we see it's abundantly clear that just starting with the obvious, that it is a sin for anybody to take a life. Number two, there are examples of suicide in the Bible. Certainly on this topic, you've been thinking and maybe asking, well, wait a second, does the Bible give any examples where people actually committed suicide? Are there places in the Bible where this happened? And the answer is yes, there are. I have found seven. You might be able to find more. The first one is listed there for you in your notes. We read about in Judges 9.54 about Abimelech. That verse says, and then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed me, and his young man thrust him through and he died. That's the first case of soldier-assisted suicide, all right? And then you have Judges 16.30, we read about Samson, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines, then he bowed with all of his strength. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those that he had killed with his life. I'm going to make a comment about that in a minute. Let me just work through the list. C, in Samuel, 1 Samuel 31.4, we read about King Saul. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through. And lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not. For he feared greatly, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell on it. D, in the next verse, we read about how Saul's armor bearer then, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul had died, he also fell upon his own sword and died with him. And then in 2 Samuel 17, 23, we read about Ahithophel, David's counselor, who revolted and followed Absalom instead in 2 Samuel 17, 23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off, um, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and he hanged himself and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. F, there was Zimri, the evil king of Israel who lasted only seven days before 1 Kings 16, 18 says, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. The seventh example, which is probably the most known example other than maybe that of Samson, would be uh, that of Judas, the seventh example of Judas, Matthew 27, 5, and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Now, I think it goes without saying that none of these seven accounts are praised in the Bible. None of these accounts were necessary. The only one that could be considered heroic would be that of Samson, but please understand that that was done in the ethics of war. That's how that's qualified. That was done in the midst of a war between God's people and the Philistines. I don't want to get sidetracked on that particular argument, but I'm just trying to say overall, the overwhelming examples given in Scripture would obviously be that suicide or some type of assistance in suicide was never praised or encouraged. 
Nowhere in the Bible do we see someone taking their own life because of pain in order to relieve that pain or to relieve that suffering or uh, that somehow that was a viable option that God would encourage them to take. The, the despair that, that drives the taking of one's own life is a heart-wrenching tragedy. And while suicide can certainly be forgivable by a merciful God, it is still an unfortunate result of the fall and a sin to be avoided at all costs. Since the days of ancient Greece, physicians have acknowledged their special responsibility to preserve life. It was Hippocrates who pledged, quote, I will never give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Even the modern-day American Medical Association has condemned medically-assisted suicide. That organization states, physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia are fundamentally incompatible with the physician's role as a healer. So with this statement, it is clear that even a secular organization believes that physician-assisted suicide is contrary to their best interests. Potential pressure from insurance companies to terminate the terminally ill or the elderly only complicates the situation. Can you imagine insurance companies are for euthanasia? They're like, kill them, because we're paying these huge bills for their ongoing life. For the Christian doctor, the primary role would be to represent Christ through compassionate medical care, not to carry out the work of the devil. Some may think that prolonging suffering is less merciful than death, but that is an argument that quickly crumbles in our age of safe and potent painkillers and palliative care. Suicide is not a romantic idea to be celebrated. It is the work of the enemy and its victims are a tragic loss to be mourned. A third truth to consider about God determining our days would be this. Number three, God alone brings life and he alone is to take life. God alone brings life. God alone is to take life. The Bible clearly states that God determines our days, not man. God is the giver of life and God alone is to determine when that life is to end. And we are not to put ourselves in the place of God. Listen to some of these passages, Exodus 23, 7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Or in Job 1, where we read, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Later in Job chapter 14, verse 5, he writes, since his days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. A familiar psalm, Psalm 139, says in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed to man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now we see from all of these passages more than ever that God determines our days. God is sovereign over everything. 
And God is sovereign over your life. He created you and he will take you home when he's ready to take you home. And to tell another person that it's up to them to terminate their life whenever they want is to tell them that they are in control, not God. Now, God may allow this to happen, but it is not the same thing as saying that God has given you the liberty to do so. In fact, Christian liberties are given to us in the Bible, and they're not to be used for our own selfish pleasure. They're to be used to to encourage others and to glorify God with a thankful heart. And you can't rightfully kill yourself or aid in killing someone else and say that was for God's glory or that you're doing that with a thankful heart. And by the way, anytime anybody says that they want something on demand, that ought to be suspect, right? You ought to be leery of that request if they are, if anybody says, I ought to have this right when I want it. I mean, everything's on demand these days, right? On demand shows, on demand movies, on demand shopping, on demand deliveries, on demand coffee. Okay, maybe that's okay, on-demand coffee. But, you know, the idea is like we want what we want right now. And the problem with someone contemplating physician-assisted suicide is like, I want to end this right now. I don't want to play this out. I want to stand in the place of God and determine what happens to me and how that happens. And it is based on a selfish motive and a motive that is not trusting and submitting to God's will. The second answer we see from the Bible as it pertains to euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide would be this. B, God is at work even in pain and suffering. Remember the other argument said the goal is to remove all pain and suffering, whatever the cost. A biblical perspective says, no, 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 God is at work even in your pain and suffering. And advocates of the physician-assisted suicide often cite pain as the primary reason for allowing you to kill yourself. But in multiple polls of patients requesting physician-assisted suicide, it's not even in the top five reasons given. It's interesting, isn't it? You would just think, oh, I'm hurting so bad, I want to die. It's not even listed as a top five. Because of all today's high-quality palliative and hospice care, almost all pain, almost all pain, is manageable. The catchy idea that that I wouldn't let my dog suffer like that, it's another argument, well, my dog has cancer and I put him down. My horse broke his leg and I put it down. So when grandma or grandpa, or if I'm grandma and grandpa and I have some type of debilitating weakness, then don't I just put myself down? Well, can I just remind you that you are not an animal, that you are not a dog or a horse, that you are created in the image of almighty God. And you have a responsibility as a steward of that created blessing that he's given to you as a human, not as just an animal, you have an opportunity to live your life in such a way that you would glorify God by communing with him and that others would see the image of God and how you live. And when you commit euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, you are destroying a person created in God's image. Not only that, but you're preventing God from working in a person's life in the way that only he can. And that leads us to the passage that you read. You're like, Adam, when are you getting to Romans 5? Well, I wanted to just spread the table with all the issues, but let's look at it. You're hopefully maybe still there in Romans 5. If not, turn your Bible back to that passage. This is one of the many passages that I would go to to walk through with somebody to remind them that God has a purpose in your pain and in your suffering. And basically, this passage is saying that we've been justified by faith, verse 1. We have peace with God through Christ, 
Through him, verse two, we've obtained access by faith and to this grace in which we stand. And notice the end of verse two then says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then the first part of verse three says, not only that, let me just pause right there. So he's rejoicing, verse one and two. I've got justification. I've been saved by grace in the gospel. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm a friend of God. I've been saved by grace. And he rejoices in that, the end of verse two. But then the first part of verse three says, not only that, and every time I read that, I think, what do you mean? You're, you're gonna rejoice in something else? Like, that's not enough? It's not enough to rejoice in salvation? Not only that, but, look at verse three, and not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Here's salvation, here's sufferings. God's word says you rejoice in both. It's the same word, it's the same tense, it's the same meaning, just as you would rejoice with incredible gratitude and unbelieving appreciation of God saving your soul, Paul says that we're to rejoice in the exact same way in the midst of our sufferings. Why? Knowing that our sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so we see actually God's word is telling us that in the midst of that terminal diagnosis, in the midst of that, that unbelievable pain, that somehow God has a point and he has a purpose and we see it right here that he wants you to fight for growth, for endurance and for character and for hope. And that's what we're rejoicing in, the fact that God's up to something good. He's, he's seen it fit to give me this opportunity to glorify him in my trial. Now, I know that's hard to stomach. That's why this is for mature Christians. It's for a believer who believes God's word, takes him at his word, and puts the word to the test, and I know you'll find it to be true. It's not the only place that mentions this. Turn over to James chapter one. You know this passage as well. It goes hand in hand with Romans five. But James chapter one, verses two through four. Again, it's like someone who's fighting for physician-assisted suicide completely forgets about these biblical arguments where, again, James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. nothing. I love this passage, right? Count it all joy whenever you meet trials of various kinds. It doesn't matter how big the trial is. It doesn't matter how small the trial is. What matters is, is that in any trial, you're looking to God, you're looking to his word, you're looking to his, his, his truth that says that through that, your faith is gonna become more steadfast and it's gonna have an effect on you, it's gonna perfect you and it's gonna make you complete because you know what? You're lacking in something. There's something somewhere that you're lacking in. And so God's allowed this to happen. He's brought it about by his divine wisdom. And we know, of course, if you want to look at 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, the same thing. God brings struggles into our lives to grow us and to mature us. And this we rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're reminded through these passages 
that God has a point and he has a purpose and you don't have the right to short circuit that by saying, you know what, I'm just going to pop a pill and be done with it. You have the responsibility to say, you know what, God, what are you teaching me? How can, I be, how can I be a witness? We're talking about Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. And verse 29, that you would be conformed into the image of his son, that he's using this to make you more like Christ. And so we've seen that God determines your days. We see that God is at work, even in pain and suffering. And the third answer would just be really simple. See there, God has given us his word to obey. We are to obey scripture. We're not to just do whatever we want, whatever we feel like, whatever we pray about, and God gave us a piece about it. It's not authoritative. What's authoritative is the word of God. And as long as we are alive, your next blank, number one, as long as we're alive, we need to be at work. We need to be at work. And this is the example from John 9 where the man was born blind. You would think that was a tragedy, and physically it was. But it wasn't his fault or his parents' fault. Sometimes people who are diagnosed with a terminal illness think maybe they've done something horrible. But we're just saying, at least in this passage, God's reminding them the reason that you have this is so that, uh, John 9, 3, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when we can do no work. And in that passage, he's just simply saying, whether you have a weakness or not, whether you're living or dead, you have an opportunity to work for God, to evangelize for God, to point others to God. Our job in the midst of any suffering or illness, even when it's terminal, is to see how this trial is going to make us more like Christ and give us opportunities to testify for Christ, to be a witness for Christ. And some of that's just simply by walking in obedience. I need to be obedient to what God's called me to do. Number two, this will encourage you. Jesus ministered to others while on the cross. Jesus himself, our Savior, faced a terminal judgment. He knew he was about to die. He had been flogged. He had been whipped. He's an inch from the end of his life, and yet he hangs on the cross. And while he's on the cross, guess what Jesus is doing? He's ministering to others. A, in your outline, he ministers to the thief on the cross. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He's essentially evangelizing and providing saving faith for a thief while he's on the cross. Not only that, but he ministered to his own mother while he's on the cross. Your next blank, Jesus ministered to his mother while on the cross. He says, woman, behold your son, to his disciple John. John, behold your mother. At that moment, he's caring for his mother's welfare. He's got a terminal diagnosis and yet he's ministering to the thief. He's ministering to his mom. You know who else Jesus ministered to on the cross? He ministered to the centurion. To the centurion, that's your next blank. We understand that after the centurion, watch this all go down in Mark 15, 39. And when the centurion who was facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his life. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. So basically, the centurion was just watching his example He's looking at the countenance of Christ. He's listening to the words of Christ. He's watching those around Christ, watching him die. And when he saw it all happen, he said, you know what? This guy must have been the real deal. This was the, surely this must have been the son of God. One last thought. When you face terminal illness, God is not stopping your ministry, but simply changing the direction. He's not stopping your ministry. He's changing the direction. You may not want 
a terminal illness ministry, but if you have a terminal illness, that becomes your ministry. That becomes your ministry in that moment to say, you know what, I got a few words left. My son, my daughter walked away from the Lord and they won't listen to me. But now that I've got just a few weeks left, they're willing to listen to everything that comes out of my mouth as they sit by me in, in, that, in that hospital room, in that hospice bed by the side. And it's all of a sudden you literally have a captive audience where everybody's like, whatever you want to say, you just say it because I know you're about to die. And in that moment, you may have a greater platform, a greater opportunity to make a difference for the cause of Christ in the midst of this crisis by saying gospel truths and by suffering well, by encouraging others that in that moment that you would have that perspective that even in the midst of suffering from terminal illness, you need to remember that you are a trophy of God's grace and you are a steward of the Imago Dei and, and, and there will be grief, but God wants us to live with the mindset of, 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 of really 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are dangerous for patients, physicians, and our society. There are sound biblical responses for every autonomy-based argument for the end-of-life issues. As Christians and as biblical counselors, we should learn that we can, with our, our dependence on the Lord and with his strength, to stop this deadly movement. As one per person said, our lives come to an end the day we become silent about things that matter. I know this is controversial. I know it's a little bit hard to think about it. I know that you would be tempted to say, but Adam, if you knew about this situation, I think you'd be okay with it. And that's where we have to take it out of our personal experience and place it back into where it belongs. It's an argument given from scripture and that we are responsible to trust Christ. If we can trust him with our lives, the take home section says, then can't we trust him in our death? Are we called to be living sacrifices or dead ones? How can you minister to others in your life even as you prepare to die? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at kind of a heavy-weighted subject, but a subject that we know that we've had many conversations about as we get older and, and face others getting older. We'll have a lot more conversations about, and we want to be able to give truth in the midst of a confusing world, and even in the midst of a confusing church-based position on this particular issue. I pray that we would think seriously, pray that we would think biblically. I, think, I pray that we would also have hearts filled with compassion and a desire to bring good godly counsel and a shoulder to cry on in the midst of some of these devastating, difficult times of life. And yet we see the glory of Christ on display and we see Christ modeling for us, ministering to others even on his, on, on his last day. And I pray that we would just take strength and that we would take encouragement and that we would take biblical fortitude and, and conviction from what we've looked at this morning and that we would embrace the trials that you bring and that we would do it with joy, with faith, knowing that you're strengthening us, refining us and making us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.